Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Two episodes ago, we discussed the protocols under which the film industry was resuming work despite the ongoing pandemic. Most of those protocols are formally established by agreements made between the unions and the studios concerning baseline requirements for testing, PPE, sick time, etc. However, there's a large and often forgotten segment of the entertainment industry that is not covered by union agreements, and that's what we're going to discuss today. My guests are members of the Nonfiction Union, an advocacy coalition of nonfiction freelancers. John Evanderspool, you're the founder and lead organizer of the organization, and you work as a showrunner and director. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks so much. It's good. So nice to be here. Glad you're here as well. Next, Caitlin Alba, you serve as secretary, and you work in production management. Also welcome. Thanks, Kid, for having us on. Glad you're here. And finally, Claire Truman, you're the treasurer and you are a post-production supervisor. Correct. Hi, Skid. Thank you. Okay. So we want to dive into how COVID has affected your industry. But before we talk about that, let's set some context. Let's start with giving a sense to our audience of how much of the work being done is actually non-union. So while we don't have any statistics to share with you at the moment, it is very clear that the nonfiction industry is sort of the, the main programming that is supporting current television and streamers at the moment. Due to the COVID pandemic and because of the unionized uh, protocols, a lot of the scripted productions are on hiatus and have been on hiatus since March 13th, 2020. And when I think about probably around May, um, I would say that I was hired to do a nonfiction show for the BET Awards, and we were one of the very first to be out there for an award show. In fact, um, all the award shows had been canceled. So I think right now, in terms of solid numbers, the nonfiction industry is the go-to programming for most of um, America, I would have to say. In the past 30 years, there's been a proliferation of nonfiction programs and I would say that they're pretty much the, the heart of most of these networks and streamers. So let's talk a little bit about that history. So when we're talking about 30 years in the beginning, why were these not covered by union agreements out the gate? Like, what do you think the thought process was when we have our original reality television, if you will? Back in the early days of reality television, the very first reality program was considered cops. The second was Real, Real World, which was with Buna Murray, and the third was Survivor. Back then, I think, in my opinion, I think this is kind of universally known, that reality television was sort of a blip. They thought that this was a fad that would go away. They also indicated that these were verite programs that, except for Real World, um, that it would be more or less one-off and that it would never have an, an additional um, air date. So it was very much a one and done, you're done, you know? And so there was no real reason to unionize because there were no writers. There were no real, um, you know, quote unquote directors, although there was for Survivor and there absolutely was for Real World. So at the time, a lot of these production companies and networks decided they did not want to um, go into that union model because it's expensive. And mm -hmm. this was key programming. And this was kind of, let's try this thing out. Yeah. Hey, this is Claire. Um, I feel like how the industry, as Johanna was saying, is it came out of something that was kind of the Wild West at first. And I think that over time, people saw it as, well, this is just the way this is just the way that nonfiction work gets created. This is the way documentary or reality TV gets created. And um, the abuses just naturally got worse and worse because that's, in my opinion, that's just kind of how our uh, capitalist economy works. Um, the business side of it is always going to want better, faster, cheaper. And um, the labor side of it will, you know, especially as freelancers, we end up accepting the best that we can get at the time. And um, I think that we've seen just um, even with within our group, um, like me versus uh, Johanna, let's say, where she's a showrunner and she's been in the industry, um, you know, I, what would you say, Joe, maybe a, a decade longer than me? Um, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. And um you know, it really took me speaking with people who had been in it longer to realize that the rates that I'm getting now 
uh, really haven't changed or or honestly gone down, if anything, um, in the past ten years or fifteen years. Um, and I, I think I think that. The industry is just like any other business. Um, the people on the business side want to see a profit for, and, and that that requires, um, or doesn't require. It's it's easier for them to uh, ask ask for more uh, with less crew, um, you know, and and crew being more um, producers and crew being more creative with with how they get things done with. Uh, get more done with less rather. Um, and people like me coming in 10, 15 years after uh, some of the people who have, who have seen these rates go down over time or stagnate severely um, or crews get smaller and the work remain the same amount. Um, people like me come in and are not necessarily educated unless they start asking people who've been around a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, being a part of the NFU has definitely opened my eyes to even more abuses than, than what I had even suspected in the first place. This is Caitlin. It's, it's just really psychological, too. And I think everybody's seeing that in the current climate that we're in is that, you know, we come into these shows, a lot of people... I, I hope a lot of people start as production assistants or executive assistants and they start on this bottom level. And, and in reality, it, it, the tone seems to have been that people saw, saw the people up at the top and, and they, were, they had these nice cars and these big houses and nice things and they got paid a lot of money. And that's what everybody wants to obtain to be kind of to Claire's point on, on the capitalism of, of business and it all. And it's become a trend of abuse where people are treated so poorly in the beginning that it, it becomes ingrained in them that that's just how it's supposed to be. And then when you get to the top, this is how you're supposed to be. And everybody else is just supposed to deal what you dealt with. And, and, you know, it builds and builds just like generational trauma, you know, it, it builds. And then all of a sudden everybody <laughs> is, is freaking out and they're, they're upset and um, they all just want a piece of the pie. So so being a part of something like the nonfiction union um, does open your eyes to, it's not just the people at the bottom and it's not just the people at the top being greedy. You know, everybody is getting taken advantage of from, from the first person in to, to the network level um, and that cycle of abuse. And so I was thinking, you know, when it comes down to the history of uh, sort of our industry and sort of why it, it never got unionized, I think there has been a certain trajectory that I think some people know about. But if you're relatively new to the industry, I think there's the, you may have forgotten that we have tried several times in 2005, Outback Jack was trying to unionize. Uh, and then of course, Biggest Loser tried to unionize and was successful. Little by little, some of these smaller uh, roles. Uh, they're not smaller roles by any means, but some of the more intricate roles such as cinematographers and camera operators, they organize. And then say some writers try to organize in 2007 and that was not successful with the WGA. So over time there, came, there comes spikes where people get really spitting mad that the networks are making so much money and that they're looking at their scripted brethren and finding out that, look, we don't get residuals, we don't get uh, proper pay, we have weird titles, and these are all by design so that the networks don't have to pay a field producer who's actually directing a director's wage or a director's um, you know, sort of contract with the DGA. And the DGA made that agreement saying, okay, we won't want to have non-union, um, non-fiction involved in this situation. So we're just going to go ahead and stick to our scripted brethren first. And, uh, and, you know, and then if someone wants to organize, we may or may not take them. And of course, when it comes to the DGA, it's very, very specialized. And it's very hard to get into the DGA as a director on the nonfiction side. So when it comes to writers for the WGA, same thing. It was uh, networks and production companies decided amongst themselves that instead of saying that these collective group of people that have a role called story producers were not writers, even though they were writing wall-to-wall -wall copy and host copy and all sorts of different writing uh, techniques from outlines to sometimes full-on scripts. And yet they would try to organize and there was not, um, there was a real resistance against it from the networks and from the production companies because they were already calling them story producers. And they figured out a long time ago with the PGA 
the Producers Guild of America, they were trying to unionize at one point uh, other producers, but they could not, they were not successful because the Writers Guild came down and, and botched that up saying that producers were management. And so flash forward, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, when reality documentary television became a thing, these networks and production companies and unions, they decided to band together and talk about it. And they were like, this is going to be a blip. So uh, how do we thwart calling producers or writers and directors and editors? How, how can we figure out a way not to call those people that? Let's call them something else. Well, in order for them not to unionize, uh, we can just call them producers. So story producers that edit um, or, or, and or that are writers, because they do both things, both tasks, they were editors and writers and they these guilds and unions and production companies and networks they decided oh well let's call them story producers the idea is that they won't be able to band together and unionize well because they have producer on the back end of their title which is what i was trying to articulate because the that's where the proliferation of these funny titles began is that instead of saying oh this person's a director we're going to call them a field producer because they have producer in their title, they can't unionize due to the labor law that was instilled back in the 1980s, early 90s. So that's how that all began, began that whole trajectory of let's call people something they're not. And the labor law does not, um, has not been updated. And that's what we also want to fight as well, is that we want to go back to the labor law and say, this is not just, you can't call a writer a quote unquote story producer because story, the producer aspect of their title says that they cannot, you know, they can't be in a union. That's wrong. It's just a cheat of a name. And is this a consequence of the studios have the, and the production companies have worked together? Because there's a, a huge proliferation of uh, nonfiction television, obviously with all the channels that are, you know, filling the material and then so much work being done. Are companies doing it differently? In other words, each company is finding its own way to sort of skirt the labor law, or has there been like this organized effort to keep things disorganized and ununionized? Well, this is Caitlin. I think I think it's you know twofold. It's dependent on on who you know, like the whole, like the entire industry, who you are and who you know. Uh, there's definitely you know, you look at agents, for example, like a WME or something like that. If you're if you're in with the WME. Well, these people are going to be your networks, your friends, your primary people that you're, you're always on NBC shows. So it, it's very much the same with production companies. It's, there are production companies that are repped by agents like WME, um, and they tend to, to be some of the more repeat offenders. You know, they, they're in the mindset of this, well, these are, you know, I'm sure not the exact wording, but lesser than shows or lesser than groups of people who don't have a writer's skill or who don't have the work of a techno crane operator, even though they're a jib operator. And, they, you know, the jobs are similar, but somehow lesser than in certain eyes of the others. So uh, you've got the undermining there. But then there's the other side of the production companies who are small, creating great content, who are trying to just survive all, all costs, overhead, day-to-day, -day, taxes, tax changes, and still employ people and give them livable wages. I think that just generally speaking, I don't know if it's production companies and networks that are trying to uh, union bust. I do think there are some bad actors out there that are absolutely resistant to um, having their productions go union. Uh, whereas some production companies are more favorable to that, but because the show budgets have been decreasing every single year, mm -hmm. there's less and less money to be made. And on the network side, they're saying there's loss of eyeballs. Um, eyeballs are not going to broadcasting and cable anymore. They're going to streamers and uh, social apps and things of that nature. So advertisers starting to throw their money in different pockets rather than put all their money on one channel. Um, so it's becoming more and more that they're saying that they don't have the money, but I'm trying to let, let you guys know that, you know, if you're taking a CW Lucifer show, which is $5 million an episode, um, they've got the money. And this is the thing that there's been sort of overall over the past 30 years that reality television is cheap. And by default that it's quote unquote cheap, it's less than. Yet, however, in the eyes of viewers, um, they kind of bundle these 
genres together. They think reality television is only real housewives or something of that nature. It's actually, you know, a tremendous amount of genres. They don't realize that your design, food, travel, paranormal, true crime, uh, competition, game show is all reality television. And so while there are shows like Ellen's Games of Games that's largely unionized, um, but the producers are not in that realm, there's a, self, uh, there's a real sense that reality television has less respect. And so if you work as a worker in documentary reality television, uh, that, you're, that you kind of signed up for what you have, which is too bad, too sad. And so these production companies just have been continuing the model. Why, why change it? right? Everyone's saying yes. There's very few times that there's been revolt. And when they have, everyone has risen, the revolt has been squashed in some level from either network level, from the production company level, or through even the workers. They have squashed their own labor movements. Just to piggyback off of that, really the way that I think of it and the way I explained it to um, a colleague of mine recently is that we're fighting a system, we're fighting a machine where we can, we can point fingers uh, directly to the top, to the networks, because again, they have the money and they are the decision makers in the end, even though there are bad actor production companies, um, a lot of times they're feeling the pressure from the networks uh, who are giving them bad budgets and horrible schedules that are completely unreasonable. But that's, like I said, it's, it's this monster that's kind of built on top of itself. And I think that it's just kind of human nature to think, well, this is the way we've always done it. And I think that there is a big element of that and both newer, younger and older, newer and, and more experienced workers alike don't seem to know what a union would give them or how they could even get that and therefore are for the idea but um i don't want to say brainwashed but they're they're very much a part if you if you only ever grew up in that system if you came up as a producer or like me and caitlin um in management or wherever if that's all you've ever known, then it's kind of hard to break the cycle. So is it by design in some respects? Yes. But in a lot of ways, it just is the beast that it is. And it, that I think that kind of makes our, our fight <laughs> that much harder. So talk to me about the founding of the nonfiction union. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles, uh, sort of from New York City in 2007, and I had already been working in documentary reality television for a few years at that point, and had left that as a supervisor, supervising producer in New York City, and I come over to Los Angeles. And at that time, there was a writer strike, and nobody was working in scripted, and that's really why I had come over here, um, because I was really uh, stricken to the fact that like nobody was unionized in our industry, and I thought that was pretty bad. And I was hoping for a new start in Los Angeles. So I was able to fall back on my, my reality and documentary background when I got out here and saw, saw that the conditions were 10 times worse, that people were being put out into unsafe working conditions. I myself, my one of my very first jobs was for um, Tom Beer's Productions. And uh, I had gone out to uh, do a show that was working with loggers. And I had been tasked to be on these big giant cranes without harnesses and to shoot and produce and do everything, a one-man band type of person out there. in wow. implement. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty, uh, you know, shocking. And I had mentioned that even for working as a female, that there should have been, you know, porta-potties or something for us, but there was nothing. And I was, you know, I was trying to create the the show Bible and how to shoot the show and bring that back to uh, his team so that they can make the show called Axemen. So at that point I saw that. And then my next show was uh, for another company that was also uh, working with talent that was um, just horrible and uh, abusive and it just trickled down. And then another show where someone was sexually harassing me, the talent was sexually harassing me. And when I went to the production company telling them that they said, well, they're important. You're not. And it's so, you know, it just, it's became just this cunning running thing of where I was like, well, we have to start doing something about it. Everyone's unhappy. And everybody I talked to has these stories, it's just not me. These are little small, little nothing stories. But I started to look into 
how to create a labor a movement and also how to create a union. And at the time, um, that was about 10 years and I put together steps. Nobody really wanted to do that. They had had that failed attempt in 2007, 2008 as producers trying to get into the WGA, the Writers Guild. Now it was failed, that failed ultimately for a myriad of reasons. At any rate, so people had just gone back to being complacent and complicit and just kind of de dealing with what they had to deal with to get by. And so by 2017, the industry was changing again because the streamers had come in. A lot of the MCOs had come in and you, you had places like Tastemade and Full Screen, you had Apple, you had uh, Verizon Go90, you had all these different opportunities to work, except for the fact that the rates had gotten increasingly worse, um, that the conditions had gotten um, just horrific. I, just all in all, people started to see a tr massive trend away from Los Angeles workers. And a lot of the work had gone to Atlanta and New Orleans and Texas, where a lot of these companies could get away with anything because the labor force there just didn't know any better, right? To fight for themselves, to fight for certain rates, to uh, have certain titles, to know how many hours they're supposed to work, how many days a week. We had gone from five day work weeks to about six, sometimes even seven day work weeks. We had gone from eight to 10 hour shoot days to 10 to 12 to 14 to 16 hour shoot days. It became very, very bad. And so I, at that time, women working in reality kind of arose, which is a Facebook page. Um, and that group really started to you know, vocalize a lot of stuff in terms of having pay discrepancy, vocalizing what your pay is, having transparency when it came to pay, um, having conversations about what companies are good, what companies are bad. And at that point, I, I said, let's go ahead and you know, unionize in 2017. So in 2017, I didn't really move forward until about 2018 when another group of people were pretty upset. And again, I said, let's do something about this. Let's unionize. So finally in 2018, people were willing to get together and decide to move forward. And at first it was just a few meetings. And then by the summer of 2018, we had an article with the Hollywood Reporter uh, come out called Story Producers and Decreasing Wages. That was what really put us on the map because at that point, then I had brought some people who were interested together, volunteers, and basically we started to start, you know, figuring out what we were going to call ourselves and what we were doing, what our goals are, and where to go. And on that end, it, we became the nonfiction quote unquote union, but we are not a union. We're just an advocacy coalition group of people trying to get ourselves into existing unions, getting our workforce into existing unions. And with that, I want to bring it over to Caitlin or Claire, because that's when they started to get involved as well. Yeah, this is Claire. Um, I had actually, I had also come from New York, but uh, a lot more recently, about uh, January 2016. And I had come up in the nonfiction space, in the reality space in New York, but I also kind of was able to dabble back and forth with uh, some nonfiction and some scripted as well. I came up as an assistant editor, transferred over to working more as a post coordinator, and really the trajectory for that position is post-supervisor and in the nonfiction space there that's really it as a as a post-management type that's that's kind of your ceiling um we don't really have the title of post-producer although some of us um do call ourselves that uh so i had always seen the abuses of of the our side of our industry um and our industry as a whole but um like I was speaking, like I was alluding to earlier, uh, when you're kind of brought up in a uh, an atmosphere of this is this just is how it is. This is what making TV is. I didn't really know much better, and because I had I had worked at a company called Sesame Workshop, the makers of Sesame Street, for about two and a half years. So I experienced what it was like to have. Um, the ability to open a 401k and have health insurance and whatnot, but there was really no upward trajectory for me there. So that was one eye-opening experience of kind of how the quote-unquote other half might be living. And then I went back to being a freelancer when I decided to uh, quit Sesame and move to LA. And I, I felt lucky enough to start getting into some feature films. Um, I worked on a, a couple Lionsgate features and I was a post coordinator. And I just remember 
you know, everybody around me getting paid really well and um, always getting overtime. And it just was just the amount of money uh, that I saw in features was really eye-opening. And that's when I started looking into on my own what it would take to be in a union myself. Because I'm, I'm around union editors all day on a feature film. Uh, why don't I have that? Why is, does my health insurance, I have to pay f for it out of my pocket, you know, nearly $400 a month. Now it's over $500 a month in 2020. But I, yeah, I just kind of was wondering why do they have that? And I've never thought it was even accessible. I never even thought that it was worth fighting for because it's just not something that post coordinators or post supervisors get. So I had already kind of been looking into it. I even studied back to like, why is management not allowed to unionize goes back to Taft Hartley. And then I honestly got distracted and busy. And then until I saw Johanna posting on women working in reality, that Facebook group she was speaking of, I had lost track of my own efforts. And I, I found in her and the other people who are willing to volunteer for this effort, uh, some real strength and knowledge that I just didn't know where to find. So then the organization starts coming together. Caitlin, how did you get involved? I actually have just been just about a year this month, um, actually, that I really had it on the radar. Um, I'm working in production management. I tell everyone, I'm the mom, um, just like Claire's the mom of post. Um, do the kids show up on time? Do they get fed? Do they sleep well? Um, and everyone always tells people in management like, oh, it's not fair that you guys don't have a union and it's not fair that you guys don't get, you work seven days a week, 24 hours a day on call and, and producers, you know, alike. And, and nobody fights for you guys and nobody nobody sends you home at your 12 hours or cares when you eat <laughs> and and so i saw you know much again you know i can't say enough good stuff as claire and johanna have said about women working in reality tv it's a it's a facebook group of about 20,000 women and women identifying uh, members who are all coming together to share resources and to to get people better involved and so that platform allowed me to see johanna's post about the NFU. Um, and I went to a meeting just about a year ago this week coming up and just was really amazed. We were, we were in a meeting with some of our union representatives here in Los Angeles, sitting in the room telling us what it could be, what it does mean, what other people have done before us and, and what we would have to do to move forward. Um, and just with, with all of that effort and that energy in the room became really interested and, and here I am. And so talk to me more about how you're organized now. Uh, I know I've been on your, on your website and you've got various committees with different goals. Talk to me some about how this all comes together. The first step for me was to let's talk to the unions. Let's all get them together in one room. Let's have them tell us what we need to do in order to unionize. Because my idea was not to just have story producers, one little you know, faction of our industry, one role sector to go and be unionized. I wanted every single person unionized. I want field producers unionized, post-production management, uh, production management, you know, field teams, story producer, post teams, writers, showrunners, APs, associate producers, everybody. I wanted everybody to take on this industry. And in uh, Staff Me Up, there's 380,000 people that are signed up on Staff Me Up, which is largely nonfiction uh, job opportunities. I see. And I feel like we could have both in New York and Los Angeles, if we just decided to band together and to stop this noise and to do something about it, we could actually make these companies, these production companies, not only the production companies, but mostly these networks listen to us and actually create a signatory process because we, we, we have the numbers. And we can just stop, but you know, there's so many people that will undermine that situation because maybe they have to, the financial hardship, et cetera. But that being said, if we tried and moved forward, we could, and we already have these institutions. We have these guilds that are, have collective bargaining. And so I brought the, the WGA, the Writers Guild East, Writers Guild West, the, I tried to get the DGA involved, they, the Directors Guild of America, they were interested, but they were not able to attend. I had IATSE, 
and also uh, the Editors Guild there, along with the Teamsters who organized casting producers as well. And we had a ton of people in that room, uh, both on East and West Coast feeds to ensure getting some sort of awareness campaign. So the nonfiction union is really mostly about educating and bringing awareness and also organizing people. That's our main goals, awareness, education, and organizing. At first we thought we had to organize every single role into the proper unions. And that was gonna be extraordinarily time consuming. Casting producers with Teamsters, production management with the DGA, post-production management with Editors Guild, field producers with the DGA, story producers with the WGA. I mean, you can already tell that this is already cumbersome. And so after working uh, for a year, not only to grow awareness and have campaigns like Razor Standards campaign that went uh, on an exclusive uh, Hollywood Reporter article, along with other various campaigns that we did and seminars and webinars and all that kind of stuff, uh, we were able to finally find a home. And one of the uh, guilds that decided to give us a home has been already taking all of us on in creating nonfiction contracts. And that is with the WGA East. And then I, we were able to convince the WGA West to get back into unionizing and they just had their most recent win. So there are six subcommittees within the nonfiction union and starting with the showrunner senior producer subcommittee. Then we have the field team subcommittee, story producer subcommittee, post-production management subcommittee, production management subcommittee, and casting producers subcommittee. All these committees are, were at once supposed to go to individual unions. They are no longer going to individual unions. They're gonna go under one union contract and the WGA has promised us housing under a nonfiction contract. The WGA specifically has been doing this for years and have been successful with the Vice, BuzzFeed, Peacock, Hearst, Sharp Entertainment, Lion TV, they've been able to turn these companies into nonfiction contracts that include every single role that is in nonfiction, from associate producer all the way up to showrunners, and from logistical producers to creative producers. And that's why we're going with the WJ East and also the WJ West, so that they can help unionize all of us, not just some of us. That's fantastic. Like that sounds exactly the path forward for everyone working in that space. And then um, do these agreements then end up with standardized wages and such, or is it we, are we reaching first for just working conditions? Or in other words, how do you see the sort of uh, benefits baseline and then growing or, or next steps? And I, I want to also uh, tee it over to Caitlin and Claire in a second, because um, the very first nonfiction contract, it won't have everything in it. Like if you think about, oh, I'm going to join the WGA and I'm a, you know, a uh, writer and you get all the benefits of the D Writers Guild of America uh, signatory contract, um, you'll get the 401k, you'll get pension, you'll get overtime residuals, all that kind of stuff. Well, the nonfiction contracts are not that, um, they're not that robust quite yet because we're in our first version. So if you had taken the contracts back in the 1920s and 30s, they probably weren't that robust either. But with every single year, they get better with negotiation. So the very first nonfiction contracts that the WGA East has been successful in convincing these production companies to um, sign and execute and be uh, participants of are basic um, in the sense that the standard titles are secured, standard pay is secured, overtime, and portable health insurance. That's a hell of a lot. We don't Agreed. have any of those things. This is Caitlin. We are the six committees, as Johanna mentioned, um, all run by peers. Um, and that's also, I think, a really important part of the structure and, and leads into this unionizing as a whole is, um, you know, people think of the union as, I don't know, maybe these mythical people that like are six of them and they all come into every place and they're all the same people and they wear capes or something like that. <laughs> but um, they're, they're actually just your peers. Um, so our committees are all made of people who are completely volunteer dedicating their time to, to helping everyone have a better and safe work environment and have those protections. To, to what Johanna was saying, you know, yeah, each first version of the contract is not maybe as sexy as, as you know, what it seems to be for our, our fellow camera operators or 
audio mixers or SAG after members, uh, but it took a long time to get to that point. Um, so it's, it's a long road to get there. You have to hang in and you have to be willing to negotiate and get with the contracts, but in, within joining the WGA as a whole um, gives us a huge amount of leverage to be able to speak confidently, be a part of educating seminars and, and uh, panels so that we can hear what our scripted brethren are, are learning. They, they get education from everything on health and safety updates quarterly to um, you know, different tools and trainings to expand their careers. Um, so be, becoming a part of that organization, even as a, even working within, not necessarily being 100% um, contracted with them, but being within the mix with the WGA East and West allows us to, to help our members get the education that they need and grow within their career. And this is Claire. I just wanted to say something based off of uh, what was jo what Johanna was saying and and what Caitlin's saying too. Um, a lot of a lot of what we've been focusing on is education, uh, but I think a different word that might be good to use um, that I've been using more is empowerment. Our coalition is really, when it comes down to it, about empowering. All of the all of the roles within nonfiction to be to, to to be engaged and to know what a union can do for them and to know how to unionize because as as we've all been alluding to um, the lack of inherent lack of knowledge that our body of workers has. We, we don't have a lot of people that still, even though we've been uh, for the past year or so, been beating the drum of this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. And that has changed with um, being connected to multiple unions and just now deciding to go um, try to have WGA unionize the entire nonfiction space. The fact is, is that we still get lots of questions from our coalition members as to how it's going to work. And it's like, a, no matter how much we're now moving into a space of really finding finding a way to not just educate people, um, we need to educate them to the fact that it will be them that unionizes themselves, like Caitlin was saying. Just like the unions don't wear capes and fly in and just flip a show or flip a company, the nonfiction quote unquote union as an advocacy coalition, we can connect people with unions. But in the end, uh, I think one of the most important lessons I've learned is each worker has to want this for themselves. And that's really the message that um, we need to be driving home. That's, I think that's incredibly powerful, uh, Claire what you've said. And I mean, right now, the NFU, we are gaining, we are getting the information from our constituents to provide to the WGA East and also the WGA West. We're doing phone banking. We are talking to each member, uh, NFU member, and finding out what, where they are, what's working, what's not, how long their, their contract is or their, their employment is, what they feel is frustrating to them. Would they be willing to be a leader in a movement? Basically asking where, where, what's going on with them? Um, what's happening during COVID? What, what are they distressed about? All those kind of things so that we can take that information, take it back to the Writers Guild East and West and be able to say the, this group of people 250 people are ready to be unionized at End of All Shine. Another oh. 150 are ready to be unionized at Critical Content. Another are, et cetera, et cetera. So that we're not trying to like murder the production companies. <laughs> On the contrary, a lot of these production companies are in a situation where they're being squeezed by the, the networks and the workers are unhappy and they're asking for union support, but they don't know what to do and they don't know how to do it. We are that group of people that are giving them that information, that are giving them that empowerment, that are mobilizing them in an education campaign so that they can understand the tools and how to organize so that each subcommittee leader, we have lead chairs and co-chairs, they're the ones kind of streamlining the communication and getting the information and getting them back to the unions. So that's sort of where we're at right now. And it's a lot of work because we have about 20, 2,500 members at this point. 
between mm -hmm. Facebook, between our MailChimp and our newsletter, between a register to New York, LA, there's people in Atlanta. I mean, we're, it's far, it's growing and it's grown exponentially within one year. We've flown and we're continuing to, uh, to fly and I want it to continue to grow, but every single time it grows, we need more volunteers to educate the new mass that comes in <laughs> because they're newbies and they don't know. And they, they're, right. they're sort of been whipped into submission and they need to be empowered and educated and then willing to provide that information because they know that we're a trustworthy source. This is Caitlin. Johanna, that's really want to drive home the point that, that you made. We're not after the production companies. We're not really after anybody other than other than having, you know, equality for, for the work being done that is across the board, the entertainment and television industry. The production companies we recognize and we sympathize, you know, it was Claire and I and, and even Johanna, we're all in positions now where we see the budgets. We work directly with, with the production companies and we know we've become, you know, permalancers at certain places for lengthy amounts of time, months and years. And, and we know how the bottom line affects everybody and everybody wants everyone to work and everyone wants to have a place to create and, and share those creations. And so it's not the, the non-fiction unit is not going after the production companies. It's not just going after the network. It's going after equally sharing the pie that we're all eating out of right. and, and making sure that everybody is getting their, their fair share. So let's bring it up to date and talk about how the pandemic has both affected the efforts of the NFU and uh, the steps you've taken to uh, bring these non-union contracts to different working groups, and also how it's affected this aspect of the industry overall. Uh, Johanna, as you mentioned earlier, um, when all the scripted shows got shut down with their longer times to get ready, there was this huge gap that got filled almost right away by an increase in reality television production, or so it seemed at least from the outside, but you guys tell me more from the inside. Yes, yeah, good. I would have to say that, you know, the COVID pandemic really opened up people's eyes. I mean, to be quite frank, and, and I think it pissed people off, to be honest, um, because this was a real slap in the face because a lot of us were working and working very hard, working already under uh, bad wages and a, a tremendous amount of overtime, and we were just incredibly tired. And then you have this pandemic and we're working six to seven day work weeks and suddenly we're without a gig and there's absolutely no relief whatsoever. And then you see something on the report saying that Netflix is you know, relieving everybody with COVID relief funds. And so is Sony and so is Viacom CBS. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, so that means that my show is gonna, you know, I'm gonna get some COVID relief. You know, this is gonna come towards me. I'm working on a show right now for Viacom. I'm working on a show for Netflix. I'm, no. It was a very small window. And while Netflix was, I, I had a conversation with the Netflix executives, um, while Netflix did absolutely pay out a lot of their scripted productions, starting with their star talent, and then trickling down to the producers, writers, directors, and editors, and um, support staff from there on, they were all able to be relieved because they had shows in production during, this, um, during the shutdown. And then there was a very, very small group of people that were doing nonfiction shows for Netflix. And then it was a really only, you know, two or three that actually got paid out. Mm. But generally speaking, it was in a small window. So most people did not meet the requirements to even get COVID relief funds from Netflix, which is really unfortunate because Netflix was trying to, do, trying to do the right thing. And really, they're kind of the only... Uh, leaders at the moment that are trying and striving for better conditions for nonfiction workers, although they're not going that far to unionize all of us, <laughs> but they should be. But I think it really pissed a lot of people off and really got people galvanized. They were mad as hell. And it started to create threads all across Facebook. Like, what about us? Haven't we already worked our asses off? What are we doing? Who's taking care of us? And suddenly the realization was more stark than it ever had been before. There are no pensions, there are no residuals, there is no portable health insurance, there is no funds coming to relieve our shows or our finances or anything. And suddenly, now we're the first out the gate too. Oh, but uh, COVID protocol hasn't been set. It's still being discussed by the unions. Well, you're not in a union, are you? So guess what? Go out there. Oh, you need a COVID officer? Oh, Caitlin, why don't you be the COVID officer as well? <laughs> 
oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, like, let's just mm-hmm. tack on with Caitlin's job, what she does already as a, you know, production manager, line producer, slash travel coordinator. <laughs> I don't know, you have a thousand jobs. I can't even think about all the jobs that Caitlin has. And, uh, you know, as coming in, um, you know, leading the ship, creative and logistically as a showrunner, it was, it was very delicate because everyone wants to work and we don't have anyone's protecting us and saving us, right? And there is no union to, to uh, advocate for us and to make sure that we're not being mistreated and to follow up from production companies that are mistreating us. There's nobody. We only have ourselves. And so a few of us decided to go out there and start working. And of course, the networks leaned on us because not only are we cheap, but we became even cheaper now because they're, you know, due to COVID costs, it costs more to make these productions. And so which job are we going to eliminate on set? How many less people are we going to have on set? How many more working hours can one person do to circumvent the fact that, you know, we don't have an associate producer or we don't have a field producer anymore? What, how, what other things can we do to strip this production down to bare bones, but yet we still are demanding absolute excellence in every situation. Um, yeah, and, and our systems are even tighter. To the COVID note, you know, and, and then you've got, well, you know, so the budgets are pretty small because we have to pay for COVID costs. And so even though we know you and we know your rate and we know you've been vying for more because you've been here for a while or you've been in this job for a while, we actually have to go down below the rate you actually were at because we've got to pay for this COVID stuff. And, and I can tell you without naming names and shows from the COVID costs I've seen, um, it's the wild west with these rates for the COVID people. I've seen COVID people who are $300 a day who used to be production assistants and you know are just trying to find another way to work um, to companies who have gotten a group of workers together and they're charging $1,400 a day. For somebody to say six feet apart, wear a mask. Meanwhile, I've got production assistants who are making minimum wage doing 15 different jobs and you know their, weight, their rates won't go up unless the state makes them. Um, so, so COVID really negatively impacted the finance side of reality TV because here we are getting lesser budgets and lesser, even lesser protection. We have people who now these COVID officers, you know, they are lovely people. They're all out there to help do something good while also still have a job. But at the same time, in reality, they're not going to demand for them to be as qualified as a COVID officer on a scripted set where they are guaranteed they have a medic. They're guaranteed they have tests every every day on scripted right. shows. They're getting tested every single day on reality shows. I've heard people not getting tested before they go on planes being in a quarantine that they're not told to stay in their rooms for the quarantine, going, you know, having a COVID officer who shows up every in the morning to take temperatures and they don't see them the rest of the day. They get rapid, rapid tested once on a four week show. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say we're trying to do our best and protect everyone and not being given the tools and the resources because it's being given to people who are, considered a more viable and important show financially for for the people that are making it. And so they're still trying to turn out this product. They're trying to do it at the same budgets and therefore it's getting crowded out because there are mandatory COVID expenses rather than recognizing that production is just going to be more expensive and adding on the COVID costs. They're trying to rearrange the current budget and sounds frankly like using it somewhat as an excuse to lower wages in other areas overall. And again, because you're not represented and you don't have an advocate. Exactly. exactly. And, the, and then they're being told, you know, well, if you guys won't do it for this, somebody else will. And it's just trying to find who will do it for the least amount of money, which only puts these production companies against each other for the bottom line. And then that trickles down to their workers. I, I want to reiterate the point that this COVID everything that Caitlin just said is is horrifying. Um, it makes me so excited to be working in post. <laughs> Sorry, Caitlin. <laughs> and and Johanna and anybody working in, in production post definitely is a lot safer. But these conditions and worsening budgets and worsening tighter schedules, it was happening before COVID. But as Caitlin was saying, it's almost like a magnifying lens. What what COVID, what the pandemic has done is really shown just to what point they're willing to take it. 
is there an average runtime on the on these shows? In other words, if a scripted show, you know, it's going to be months and months. And if you're not following proper protocols, they're going to catch up with you. Um, I know on the opposite end of that, commercials have been coming back. And like we discussed um, uh, when we were discussing COVID protocols, yes, it's a lot of union coverage on the commercials, but there's such short periods of time that it was the assessment of our discussion that the production companies could almost outrun the consequences of not falling COVID properly. Where does it fall with reality TV? You mentioned four weeks, Caitlin, that's too long, right? Like people will start to get sick if steps aren't taken to maintain a bubble or proper protocols. Are you guys seeing that, that reality shows are getting hit by COVID? Yes, there's been a, uh, a few that have, uh, you know, we called it uh, that Atlanta was dropping like flies. A lot of the housewives franchises shot down there. The Food Network shows are also shot also in the South. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them are quote unquote dropping like fr- flies because these companies are putting them out there for so long. And, um, and, and without the proper protocol or having half, half-assed the protocol, <laughs> or right. uh, doing their best, but not having done it fully the right way and or being one of the early shows to have gone out and now everyone's being cautious. But in the beginning, it was sort of the wild, wild west, as we mentioned. Yeah, people have been, um, you know, shows have sh- shut down because of improper protocols. Mm-hmm. I know that when it came to, down to my, la- my current show, it's been a week. Yeah, we could have probably outrun that week for production. I'm in post now, so it's just all, you know, I don't have to worry about it. But Caitlin was out for what, six weeks? How long were you out for? Yeah, yeah, I was out for six weeks. And we we had a great experience there, I do have to say, um, to, to that production's point um, and reputation. We had a great experience and did things the way, almost to the T, to the best we could, you know, with, with the guilds and what they suggest. But there are shows that are two weeks long. And by the time someone's showing symptoms, they're on the next show. And then that show gets shut down. So, so it's about knowing, too, that even though we're all trying to work and get it done, the more that production companies allow the rules to be bent, they're only going to hurt themselves. Because if people aren't going to get sick on this show or hurt on this show, they're going to take it to the next show and that show what, you know, and, and a lot of these people right now, the model is to keep people in house. So these field teams are going mm-hmm. from one show to the next show to the next show on the same production company, because in, in some ivory tower mindset, Oh, well, we're all in the bubble. We've all been working together, but you're all still going out when you need to get something. You're still at home every night. If you're local for your show and, and that that's not the true bubble that, that these, uh, protocols are asking for and it's it becomes almost impossible to think about it on paper to look at it on paper from the guild recommendations and say we can't make a tv show like this even from their standpoint um you know if you shoot on the voice in la you still go home every day you still go to the grocery store to pick up your kids from their group activities where they're they're all on zoom at someone's house you know um so Yes, the protocols are important, but at what point is it actually possible to safely make a television show in this climate? I, I don't think it is possible. And so, so it's important to know that any television that's being made right now, people are putting themselves at risk because they financially have to, they creatively want to. And for all of us, there's not another there's not another option because we're not all covered together to be able to say we all need to be taken care of. And there's not a large, there's not a large entity that's taking care of all of us the same. And I want to piggyback off what Caitlin said too. There are companies that are, you know, some of the more sizable companies like in the mall are, are working with the unions um, in some respect, even though they don't have to follow union guidelines, but they do have a, a hefty number of camera men and audio women and, and uh, editors that are in the union that they then, you know, decide, okay, well, we'll listen to what these individuals at the unions are saying because they've set protocol, it's been announced, it's been in press. So yeah, we'll go ahead and listen to what they have to say. Oh, we'll implement that. That sounds like a pretty, you know, a lot of these production companies are looking for guidance and they have found some guidance through the unions, uh, which is wonderful. And then there are other production companies that are not. 
and they're usually the smaller production company and they have to reduce uh, their liability because they're only one contract away from being destitute because they only have one network contract. And when that contract's finished, they're out of a job, right? I mean, there are production companies on hiatus themselves. So, you know, these companies are the probably more of the problem child because they're they're trying to figure out ways to thwart workers because and limit the liability if someone gets sick on their set. So there are these things called COVID waivers that the unions and their constituents have said, okay, we're definitely not signing this. You know, right. over at Teamsters, we're definitely not signing COVID waivers. Over at DGA, definitely don't sign those damn COVID waivers. But when it comes to us in terms of nonfiction workers, we're being handed them the day that we arrive to work and we sign our deal memo. And in the deal memo, there's COVID language that's pretty dubious. And you're required right then and there. You probably gave up a couple of job offers. This is maybe the first time you've worked in months. You're looking around saying, who can I call to understand what this language means? Hmm, I guess I'll just have to sign it. And in that language, which is the separate addendum or COVID waiver itself, is language that says, if you decide to come up at this time into production with us, that you have to know that you may become COVID positive. And if so, you're liable for your own, you know, situation and you hold us harmless for anything that happens, quote, dot, 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 even if we're negligent, dot, 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 dot. Also, if you decide to band together with other people who have signed this waiver, you can't do so. Wow. <laughs> so that seems, that's a pretty red flag to me. <laughs> and just to paint a picture for for people listening it's think of it in a in a simple scenario you you live in new york and your show is going to shoot in kentucky and you have to take a covid test when you arrive if the production company doesn't covid test you before you leave or they covid test you the day before you leave and they don't get accurate results for a pcr test which is currently the most effective um, test then you get on a plane say you've, you're asymptomatic or you become symptomatic on the plane. You show up and you test positive at the hotel upon arrival at your first test, hopefully. Normally it's the next morning because they don't want to ask somebody to stay up late for you to, to make sure you're okay. Then you get sent home. There's no job. There's no kill fee. There's no, there, there's no anything for you. And now you're out of a job because you signed away your ability to say, well, you asked me to get on this plane and you asked me to come here and you didn't provide the proper tools you were supposed to. And, and now, now I'm SOL. So it seems like that the pandemic is adding tension to whatever um, sort of forces were pulling on this unionization effort in both directions where there's financial pressure, um, there's this push for liability and there's um, taking advantage of non-union status definitely to continue getting work done and, and, and pushing people into basically signing away their rights, both to organize and uh, to work in a, in a safe environment. At the same time, Johnny talked about how these tensions are helping to raise awareness among the folks who work in this space, uh, the hundreds of thousands of folks who do this work about the need for these protections that ideally is helping with the organizing. And, and we will see some benefits from on the other side. How do you guys see these tensions playing out over the next, well, let's, let's call it another year. Wow. Until uh, the country as a whole really gets the pandemic behind them. <laughs> Um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I, I definitely think a lot more people are starting to adhere to these COVID policies. I do think there's a, a level, if, if we're bringing awareness and attention to it and having press, which I, I think press is a very good way to keep people accountable because God forbid that you're the company that is, you know, called out on, on this article. Um, and that's what the NFU had been so great in doing when the COVID pandemic broke out. We had several articles from Variety and the Wall Street Journal and Vanity Fair that we basically, you know, we also helped find some of the companies that were quote unquote 
deceiving people by deceiving reporters and um, and government officials by saying that they were essential business when they absolutely were not essential business. If you're hunting for aliens and you tell the government that you should be open for business because you're hunting aliens and that you consider that essential business, that's not news gathering. That's not reporting. That's yeah. a bad production company trying to stay open so that they can finish out their contract with sci-fi channel. That's some bullshit. And so uh, the NFU put out articles uh, finding these individuals and these production companies and calling them out for uh, basically trying to, they're, they're trying to bury the bodies. They were trying to, you know, skirt issues. And so that's what we're going to continue doing. And so that we can make these production companies and networks more or less networks compliant to what we know that they should be doing responsibly. They should have corporate corporate responsibility. So that's what I see happening, at least with the NFU continuing to put pressure points on the situation to illuminate the conversation. In terms of the greater industry, I do think now that this is the COVID pandemic is not going away and we're starting to figure out vaccines and all sorts of ways to combat this situation, I don't think it's changing for a year. I think that the production companies are going to figure out how to continue doing business or bust. That's it. I mean, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of projections you can go, but it's still quite in its infancy and everyone is just now coming out of the woodwork and just looking around saying, are you open? Are you open? Oh yeah, we're not open. Even the company I'm working with right now, we have one show, AKA my show that is out having already done field production with talent, went out into real, real world conditions and brought it back into post. The, the company that I'm working at, Claire also works at, and she's on a totally different network and a totally different show. And because of her network, which is uh, own, mm -hmm. Oprah has said, no one's going out and filming with talent. Absolutely not on my watch. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Uh, and I know Claire can speak about that, but I don't, you know, I don't know where the projections are going to go. I, I still think everyone's still treading very cautiously and figuring it out. And there will be some protocols that will become standardized. And I think that's already started to happen. Yeah, this is Claire. I can speak a little bit to what Johanna was saying. Essentially, just like pre-COVID times, um, since we're an industry full of freelancers, hopping from network to network, from production company to production company, um, just like with rates and, um, you know, other, other standards or not standard <laughs> enough, which is what we're fighting for, uh, with, with the COVID era, it really also comes back to that particular company or that particular network and how they want to handle it. So just in our situations um, where both Johanna and I happen to be working at the same rather small newbie production company, my experience has actually been pretty decent with them, but it's, it's partially due to I mean, what we assumed was coming down from Oprah herself, hopefully, <laughs> but um, own as a network, what they kind of mandated um, was that all productions be done as, as uh, remote as possible, meaning no crew was supposed to be in physical contact um, or in the same room as the talent. And that has just become, I mean, I, I, not become, that is mostly impossible. Um, ACs had to be hired locally. And it was kind of like what I heard from production is when they hired a local AC, they would have to go in without the talent there, set it up and leave. But the original plan was no local AC, no local anybody, literally shipping a camera package with a lav setup to these celebrities. We're talking like, from what I, I understood from, from the rumors that I heard, the, the way the production company that Johanna and I happened to both be working at, um, they really took from OWN's mandate that no, no 
production crew member would be in the same room or have physical contact with the talent. Um, so completely remote was the mandate. And I don't know if that came from Oprah herself or what, but, uh, you know, even working in post, I saw how difficult that was for, for production. And I right. feel that, um, there, there can be mandates, um, coming from the network. And I think that that really helps, but, in the end, the production companies and the crews themselves really are the ones that have to um, take responsibility. And just reiterating what Caitlin said a while ago is that um, if it's not us as management or Johanna as an executive producer showrunner, uh, who's, who's looking out for the whole team? Somebody in charge has to say, we can't do X, Y, and Z um, because if it's not coming from the production company, is it coming from the network? If it's not coming from either, you know, and there's, there's sticky situations that can happen uh, without proper guidance. And really we, we all end up having to look out for ourselves. There are some, some good things I, I can say field wise, you know, though that do come out of this, like Johanna was saying is there are protocols that will stick and, and we've adjusted in, in the field in certain ways that are also beneficial, you know, um, when, when we can, we can say, you know, it, it does take that extra amount of time and, and understanding and, and kind of hoping that our production company owners and our network executives and understand why it takes longer, you know, they come out to set and they visit or they can't come out because they can't visit. Um, and they see, you know, what the, what the actual impact is, um, it's, it's a great idea to hand sanitize your hands all the time when, when there's 50 people on set and everybody's touching the same stuff. Um, so there, there are protocols that I, I hope do stick um, to a degree. You know, it's, it's great to know that when I do work in the field, I get tested and to some 72 to 96%, I know that I currently am healthy um, because my job has never provided any sort of health benefit for me. So, so there are certain things that, that are hopefully going to stick around for at least a good while that give people just that extra layer of protection that we didn't have before. Well, and combined again with those, we've highlighted a couple of times, uh, heightened awareness and then this idea that people need to advocate for themselves and that by doing it collectively, there can be gains and uh, you're not going to put these companies out of business. There is money to address these issues um, that you guys are advocating for. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. We'll do uh, hopefully the podcast will do our part in, in getting that word out as well. If people want more information, where can they go? I think they should go to www.nonfictionunion.com and register. Maybe I should just say that without saying the www. That just shows my age. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, if they, they, we have Facebook groups and they can feel free to find us on IG, Twitter, Facebook, just type in nonfiction union and it should populate right up and also on Google. So, uh, and of course, uh, we're an open book, so you can contact any one of us at the nonfiction professionals dot union at gmail.com and one of us uh, caitlin claire myself will write back and respond to you if you're interested in volunteering for the nfu if you want to uh, vocalize you know your support and be in one of the subcommittees um, either way we're happy to hear from you and uh, eager to move forward collectively together great talking to you guys today i think it's a really important issue and uh, uh wish you continued success thanks so much for coming on the show thank you so much thanks kid Listeners, I always welcome your feedback. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. And if you are a new listener, most of our material is evergreen. So feel free to peruse our past seasons. Maybe another episode will catch your eye. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at podcast below the line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at pod below the line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks again for listening. Be safe out there.